Let me invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel chapter 3. When I had set out my preaching schedule calendar, I had planned on covering all of Daniel 3 all in one sermon, and we are going to cut it up instead. We are going to do the first half of Daniel 3 this week and the next half. They, they are, it is all one unit, and yet half is tied together uniquely, and the second half builds upon this theme and adds to it. This is sufficient for us to look at Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Daniel points us to a beautiful truth of, of what we are to do, how we can trust the Lord, points us to the picture of these three friends of Daniel. Daniel is not alone. We have emphasized Daniel. Daniel, as he has recounted his story, has pointed us to, to what the Lord has done in him and through him in Daniel 1 and 2. But up to this point, Daniel has not been alone. He has had friends accompanying with him. He has not had to stand alone, even when he is standing alone. But in this chapter, Daniel is not mentioned. The focus is on his three friends and their faith, their trust, and the deliverance that God grants them. Before we study the word of the Lord this morning, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, this is indeed your word. Cause it, we pray, to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. That we may walk in this path and that we may revel in the light of the glory of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. During the middle part of the 20th century, after World War II had ended, Joseph Stalin, the power of Russia and the Soviet state, and the power of Joseph Stalin was becoming increasingly settled there in the East. Those in Russia felt the absolute nature of the tyranny there in ways that are difficult for us today to fathom. One individual, many individuals were speaking up against the absolute tyranny of Stalin and that of the oppressive state of Russia. Many were speaking up against it, but one in particular, one man, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I hope I'm saying his name right, he himself speaking up against what he saw as the injustices of his time, of his place, he was thrown into the gulag system, experienced it firsthand, the horrors, the hardship, the injustice. There he witnessed that some of the worst people were those prisoners were given overtime. They were given, if they were good enough, if they were ruthless enough, they were given power. They were given authority within the gulag system. And they were the ones who were most to be feared. But he saw that as you came in, each individual was pressured heartily to sign a confession of, the, of their crimes. Confessions that were not true but were made up. These were confessions that were merely used to justify their presence there. They were used by Russia to justify the incarceration of these individuals. But Alexander saw that there were numerous people who wouldn't sign those confessions. They lived defiant of the Russian state. 
They would not lie. They would not deceive. Coincidentally, many of these people he noticed were deeply religious. These were people of faith, many, many of whom were Christians. And upon his release years later, Alexander again found himself on the wrong side of the Russian state. He began criticizing again and again and again, but by this time in his writings, he had become so well known, not only in Russia, but in the West, that imprisoning him again, executing him just wasn't an option. International politics were too dangerous. And so Russia simply took him, flew him to another part of the world, and dropped him off outside of Russian territory. That is a way to get rid of people you don't want. But before he was taken, before his arrest, and before his, he was exiled outside the country of Russia, he sent out one last message, wrote one last letter to his fellow countrymen to encourage them to oppose the power of the Russian state. And he didn't tell them to oppose the power of Russian oppression through taking up arms, by raising an army, by militarily or in some way trying to stop the Russian power. Rather, he urged them to defy the massive power of the totalitarian government of Russia by what he described as to live not by lies. That is, they could, they were not, as individuals, they were not able to stop the state of Russia through their media spreading lies. They could not stop the lies of their country. But they could decide not to allow those lives to live, those lies to live through them. They could decide to defy the state of, the state of oppression by living not by lies. And that is what Daniel 3 calls us to do. It gives us a picture in these three men of those who live a defiant faith is that which is lived not by lives, but defiant faith is those who live by truth. And this is where we are headed this morning. This is where Daniel 3 takes us. So follow along as I read Daniel 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 15 this morning. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication, to gather this dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, 
that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre in psaltery and symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the, harp, the lyre, and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good! But if you do not worship... You shall be cast immediately into the burning, into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Here in these verses, we are given this, this account of the defiant faith of these young men. We see in the opening verses in we see that there is a, a danger of arrogant lies that is propagated by Nebuchadnezzar. He himself seems to believe and is calling others to believe. We see the very first one, first lie is that someone other than God has the power, the rights that belong to God alone. That someone other than God has the power or the rights that belong to God alone. I'm getting that where you see in the very first sentence, in the very first verse, however, that there is an image that has been set up. This, this, this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar has set up a God again and again, it appears almost ten times in the first 18 verses. It is a significant idea. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image. And in fact, in every, in every section, on the lips of every group or person, you find this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar has set up this image. Repeatedly, this is found. Either way, Nebuchadnezzar is acting as if he has the right, he has the power to set up an image that everyone else has to bow the knee to. He's claiming himself, to himself, for himself, an authority and a right that doesn't belong to him. Here's an image. Everyone must bow down to it. 
This is a right and authority that belongs to God alone. And Nebuchadnezzar should have known that. I mean, we just, last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 2. And there we saw that it is God who sets up kings and removes them. It is he alone who has that right and authority. He is, the one, he is the one alone who is able to set up kings, to set up those to whom we bow the knee. Even in verse 47 of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Even Nebuchadnezzar, he recognizes who the one true God is. Your God is the God of gods. Your God is the one true God. There is none other. There is no one like him. No other God could do what he does. And yet Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know how much long later this text doesn't give us a time stamp. We don't know what year of reign this is for him. But here, he sets up this image claiming to himself a right and authority that belong to God alone. That is the first lie. The second lie is this, that there is something or someone other than God that is worthy of being worshipped. There is someone or something other than God that is worthy of being worshipped. You know, this image is certainly impressive. It is 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, it is made of gold, constructed of gold. It is set out on this plain of Dura. So it is set out in a place where you would be able to see it for miles. And you can imagine this golden structure, this golden image, whether it is an image of someone, of Nebuchadnezzar himself, or it is a, some kind of shape that is merely to be worshipped, we are not given clarity on, but it is a, a golden image. You can imagine in the new day, noonday sun how bright that would have been, riding up to it on a horse, how you would see it from miles around. An impressive, huge structure, 90 feet tall. Yesterday, I was, Melissa and I were talking, we were trying to figure out something to correlate. What does that correlate to? A blue whale is about 90 feet tall. And we realized, so is the distance between third base and home plate, right? You have been watching playoff baseball. How many times have you heard that the winning run is only 90 feet away? This is an impressive image. And you notice that location on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. You know, back in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel already, he made this connection between Babylon and the land of Shinar. That is Babylon and the place where the people, I'm sorry, the place where humanity back in Genesis 10 set up what we have come to call the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar. And there, back in Genesis 10, you will read that they constructed this, 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 this tower on a plain in the land of Shinar. Here again, we have this, this connection. Not only is Nebuchadnezzar doing exactly what was done then, 
He is declaring if that tower was a source of, I'm sorry, was a picture of human pride and arrogance. Look what we can do. We are going to make a name for ourselves. We will get to heaven on our own. Here we have the same sort of thing. It is a pillar. It is an image constructed for the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar, for the glory of man. You will worship my image that I have set up. So in the very place where Moses describes humanity constructing a tower to celebrate human arrogance, so Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing. Which is nice to remember that history repeats itself, even when that history is really dumb. We just see that over and over and over again. People do dumb things again and again and again. What Daniel wants us to remember that God alone is worthy of being worshipped. Daniel 2.20, we are told, Nebuchadnezzar himself declares, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Oh, how quickly Nebuchadnezzar has substituted the glory of God for something made of gold, for something that will rust and one day fall apart. You know, in our community, we, we do the same thing. We, are, we like to read this passage, and, and we want to put ourselves in the place of these three men. Oh, I'm going to be like one of those guys. I'm going to stand. I'm going to be defiant. The reality is, you and I are often just like Nebuchadnezzar. We are setting up gods and images that, that we devote ourselves to, that we expect others to devote themselves to. You know, in our community, especially at this time of year, we in Philadelphia, we love our sports. We're not in Philadelphia, but we're close enough. I remember years ago when I was, during my college years, did an internship in inner city Philadelphia. One of the things that the pastor of the church had me and the other intern do was to go down into the heart of Center City one day and ask people on the corner merely a handful of questions. One of those questions is, what drew you to come to Philadelphia? And you would get the normal expected answers. There was work. Well, one of the answers that I found, that both of us found most common, was love for the sports teams. Now, I grew up in the area. For better and more often than worse, I love the sports teams. How often do we, our affections, our days, our happiness, our joys, do they rise and fall on our sports teams? But it doesn't just have to be a, a, an athletic team out there. Perhaps it is not our sports team, but the sports team of our children. Our hunting schedule, our family events, more hours at work, a home project, sleeping in, all of these things take us from the regular worship of God's people. Little by little, we communicate who and what our real gods are. The ones that we really bow the knee to, the ones who really have our hearts and mind. 
the lies of pride, the lies of human idolatry and arrogance are not satisfied with mere, merely being private. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just construct this image for himself. He demands, arrogantly demands, everybody worship. And you see that again and again. He calls a public gathering, verses 2 and 3. And then he demands that they worship. The music plays, you know, all of those terrible instruments are playing, all kinds of music, everything. They play. And everybody's addressed. And if they fail to worship, what happens? They're thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. I don't know why he just didn't write furnace and not just burning furnace. Or not just fiery furnace, but it is a burning fiery furnace. The, the effect is to heighten it. It's to increase it, to help us see this is going to be painful. This is going to be severe. The arrogance and idolatry of our world demands to be celebrated by everyone, affirmed by everyone. And when you do not affirm it, when you do not celebrate it, what happens? Suffering. It's not merely that you can't question it. It's that to question it, will, to fail to bow the knee, will mean that you, are self, you yourself are threatened. You are subject to attack. And we see this again and again in our day. You know, the college professor who questions the ideology that is being taught on college campuses about who we are, about the very nature of men and women, to question that, to question whether it's scientific, to question whether it is helpful, healthful, rational, good. That's a dangerous place to be. The man or woman who at their job won't celebrate Pride Month, that's a dangerous place to be. In a Christian group's on college campuses around our country. They are opposed often because they won't bend the knee to what has become normal, to what is being described as good. It is not merely enough that they will allow others to live as they please. They must affirm it. They must celebrate it. They must join in the worship. They must follow the demands to get on the so-called right side of history. In this passage, brothers and sisters, Daniel writes to encourage us in a defiant faith. But we need to keep in mind, these are not only issues that we will face for those on the left. These confront us on the right. These confront us here. What are the gods that we have in our lives? What are the things that if you challenge them, if you question them, you will be attacked? You will be threatened? Here's an ad campaign that has come out. You've probably seen it. If you've been watching any of the playoff baseball, you've probably seen it multiple times. That ad, he gets us. Jesus gets us. And I, on one level, I, have, I can understand exactly what they're trying to do. 
but it's a very short step from he gets us to he gets us because he's just like us. And then it's one short step over then if he's just like us, then, then we're just like him. And we demean him. We belittle him. But this goes even to politics. I mean, to amongst those who are conservative, to question, to criticize in any way the former president will bring wrath and threat and anger. If you're not sure about that, try it sometime. Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image, a golden image of himself. And repeatedly, President Trump has sent out images on social media. Most recently this week, an artist portrayal rendering of him in the courtroom sitting at the defendant's table and next to him is Jesus. Him and Jesus, they're together. And it wasn't too much long, too, too long ago at a major conservative conference when people were pushing a golden image of Trump through the hallways and it was being celebrated and cheered. Here is the clue for us that things have merely moved from good things to things that are idolatrous. It's that two things. One, that it's not merely good enough for us to like them. We demand others like them. And that when they don't, we respond with anger. We get defensive. That's what we see happening here. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image, demands everyone else bow the knee, and threatens them when they don't. And this is going to require a certain kind of faith to face. It's going to require not the kind of faith that's merely trying to please everyone. It's going to require a kind of defiance. A defiant faith. A faith-fueled defiance. We see that by these three men, the accusations of the Chaldeans come to us in verses 8 to 12. Why they accuse, we are not really told. We can guess these three young men in Daniel chapter 2. They are ushered from the low end of the spectrum of wealth, of respectability, of power and influence, all the way to the top end quickly in a night. One day they are low and insignificant, the next day they are on top of the world. And it very well could be, most likely is, it appears, that these Chaldeans are jealous of these men. And Nebuchadnezzar, as soon as he hears, he is furious. And he responds furiously, calling them, and then calling them, and when they arrive, he threatens them. And then that key question there at the Verse, end of verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Oh, how quickly he has forgotten what has come before. 
But notice verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And I just want you to notice real quick, whereas the Chaldeans, they come to the king and they're crying out, O king, O king. Here, the response of these guys is they don't, they don't, they don't give him that honorific at this moment. They will in just a little bit, but at this moment, they, they call him by his name, O Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. That is a bold statement. Who are you? Who, what God is going to save you from our hand? Why will you not bow the knee? We don't even have a reason to answer you. They go on, if this is the case, if that is the case, that is, if that is the case that you are going to throw us into the burning, fiery furnace, if we do not bow the knee, this is what we believe. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. They declare their faith in God, whom they believe will rescue them. God is able, and we believe that he will rescue us. He will deliver us. This is why I said earlier, I am certain that these men were remembering the promises found in Isaiah chapter 43, which we read together as a church. That which was written more than a century than, these, than what these men experienced, Isaiah is writing, and he writes those words long before these men lived. And in the fire, God will be with them, and they will not be burned. They are taking that promise and they are believing it. But I want you to understand that even as they, they confess faith that God is able and that they are certain, they are confident that he will, they do not presume upon him. Do you notice that? But if he does not, what they're saying there is, look, we know God is able, we know he can, and we think he will. But our God is free to do whatever he wants. Whatever my God ordains is right. And if he deserves, I'm sorry, if he desires that we should be thrown in and there meet our end, then glory be to God. But we will not bow the knee to this image. We will not worship him. That is faith-fueled defiance. They are not living by lies. They are living by what is true. Not by what they may feel, but by what is truly real. They know who God is. They know what his promises are. And they are living in light of that. And we will either live with this kind of faith-fueled defiance or we will find our faith coming up short in the moment in, of pressure and trial. You know, sometimes, often, we, 
especially young men and women. This may be a temptation for you and I more than others. But we may live into this illusion that if we are nice enough, if we will be gentle enough and winsome enough, then people will be okay with us. And that's just not true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not trying to come to assuage the king. Oh, no, 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 it's okay. You're going to do what you do. We, we'll do what I do. Nor do they in the moment. You can, almost, you can almost see some individuals believing, hoping in God, but they're like, you know, what's a moment of bowing the knee? Really? Here I am. What's going to... So we bow the knee. And we could justify it. This will give me many, many, many more years of faithful service to God. I'll bow the knee here, but in my heart, I'm not going to bow the knee. That's not the way it works. These men, they understand that we will either offend the world or we will offend God. We cannot be a friend to the world and be a friend to God at the same time. Brothers and sisters, this is pressure that you and I face every week. You face it at work. You face it in schools. You face it with conversations with people. How will you respond? Brothers and sisters, pray for one another. Pray for each other. Pray for the men and women at work. That they may live out what God calls us to live, how to, to believe and trust Him. Pray for one another to navigate difficult family relationships. Pray for those in school, in college, the pressures that they face. Pray for young men and women. And if Paul the Apostle in the New Testament asks for believers to pray for him, that he would be bold to declare God's word as he knows he ought to, how much more ought we to be praying for one another? Pray for each other. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastors. That our hearts will be more submissive to God's word And we will care more about what God thinks than we do what the world thinks. Than we do what even you think. Let us pray for one another. And the point of this passage, and the point of this is to point us to the ultimate faith. These men are examples of defiant faith. And we need to walk in that example. But this story that doesn't end there. Our hope is not in these men. And our hope is definitely not that we, by our own lives, can be defiantly faithful ourselves. It leaves us more than with just a moral message, a set of moral demands. It leaves us with hope to look, us, to, look to Christ. And Jesus is the truly faithful one, isn't he? Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 to 10. 
The devil takes Christ to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And the temptation came, comes to Jesus to bend the knee and to receive the glory of the world. This is a real temptation, a fiery one, and yet, where Adam failed back in the Garden of Eden, Christ, Christ obeys in the wilderness. And we fail again and again and again, but where we fail, Christ succeeds. His obedience is described in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Our disobedience brings death. The wages of sin is death. But Christ's obedience brings life. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Or you and I fail to be faithful, Christ is obedient. And the call then is for you and I to trust in him, to trust in our Savior, who by his faithfulness goes to the cross and wins for you and I salvation. And if we are to live in light of the cross, we need to be living in light of the future judgment of Christ, who is the faithful and true. Revelation 19 gives us a picture of one of Christ as he is faithful and true, he is described. It is his picture, it is a picture of his judgment. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and, by, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were follow we're following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when the faithful and true one will cast down every nation all peoples, all gods, and they will be destroyed. Remember Christ's victory 
the faithful one. Remember his wrath. The best way, really the only way for us to live, Daniel 3 points us to, is not by the lies of the world, but to live by the truth of who God is, of what God has done. And we have the right, the privilege of looking back through Christ, the faithful and true one for us. Look to him. Live by him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will help us to live to live with a defiant faith. That we will not be intimidated by the threats of this world but that we will live in the eternal hope of what you have promised us. Oh God, help us to trust in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.